Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Over the past few years making this show, there are a handful of episodes that have stuck with us. The episodes that really capture the role of the American president, that offer particular insight into the ways the presidency was designed to work in our country and how that design is incredible, exceptional even, and also flawed. So today we are bringing back one of those episodes. This show, which originally ran on July 4th last year, is a deep look at what the founders wanted the American presidency to be. It offers some explanations for why there aren't more limitations on what the president can do and how the role has evolved over time. We think you'll learn a lot from this one. So here it is. It's 4th of July weekend in the United States, the annual commemoration of our nation's independence. Here at Can He Do That, this holiday got us thinking about how it all began and how our country's founding might give us answers to some of the looming questions we face on this show. Namely, why, more than two years into our podcast, do we find our Can He Do That answer to so often be yes? Why does it seem like presidents can virtually do whatever they want? Why are there seemingly so few constitutional limitations on the president of the United States? Prompted in part from listener questions from you fine folks, we've decided to spend this episode looking at how our nation's executive was intended, how its powers were designed, what our Constitution's framers saw for the future of the presidency, and what they never could have predicted. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Here on this show, we spend our time delving into the powers of the presidency as they're applied today. But how exactly were those powers conceived? The story starts some 230 years ago. More than a decade after the Declaration of Independence is signed, in the summer of 1787, in the Pennsylvania State House, the Constitutional Convention is summoned to create a president with sufficient energy to achieve common purposes. Jeff Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. He's also host of another podcast, We the People. He explained to me how the framers initially thought of the presidency as they began to deliberate the Constitution. The Articles of Confederation, an agreement among the states that served as our nation's first constitution, didn't have the president lead a separate branch of government. He merely presided over the Congress. And that setup wasn't quite working. The Confederate Congress was unable to raise money to support the war or to supply the common defense. So the framers are determined to create a president energetic enough to lead the nation but also constrained enough not to be a king. And that was really the big debate. How should the president be elected? What should his powers be? And what should his relationship to Congress be? 
There was disagreement over how to solve the problems created by the Articles of Confederation. Deliberations around what our executive would look like really heated up. Alexander Hamilton wanted the equivalent of a king. He wanted a president who would serve for life. And it's a, a wonderful irony of both American history and theater history that, that Hamilton is kind of a rap star and considered a countercultural force because he was very supportive of a life-tenured president who would, who would look a lot like the British king and was accused of, of being a secret monarchist. Others like the anti-federalists, uh, George Mason of Virginia and others, were determined to avoid a king. The whole point of the Constitution was to prevent the tyranny of King George and wanted a very constrained officer who looked more like the president of the Confederate Congress. The office that resulted was something of a compromise between those two visions. And that final result, our American presidency, emerged from some other big compromises in the details. First, they debated the Virginia Plan, which would have created a national executive with general authority to execute the laws and also would have had the power working with judges to veto and review laws passed by Congress unless Congress passed the law again. Ultimately, they compromised on a veto subject to two-thirds override. There was a really important debate about how to elect the president. At the National Constitution Center, we have the very first drafts of the Constitution written by James Wilson, the great framer from Pennsylvania. And an early draft supported by Madison would have allowed the president to be elected by the legislature. Wilson, who believed that we, the people of the United States, are sovereign, wanted direct election by the people. That compromise on how to choose our president was our electoral college. Delegates had to vote 60 times before the Electoral College was chosen. And the idea there was that wise men, and they were all men, would choose the best candidates based on their personal knowledge of that person. The framers also came to compromise about the length of presidential terms. One early draft would have created a chief magistrate whose title shall be His Excellency and would have served for six years. But that was eventually whittled down to a four-year term in the final days of the convention. And so, from all of these debates, how did we settle on a single executive, on the final version that ended up in our Constitution? Well, in Wilson's very earliest draft, uh, there, there was always a single executive. It took place in Article 2 of the Constitution, the basic structure of the Constitution with Congress first, then the presidency, then the judiciary was present from the earliest drafts. It's really significant that the very first words of Wilson's dra first draft of the Constitution, the first time anyone ever put anything to paper, didn't say we the people of the United States. It's a resolve that the government of the United States shall be composed of an executive, legislative, and judicial branch. So, so that separation of powers was up from the very beginning. It was the really important disputes over the details, in particular over the method of presidential election, how long the term should be, and exactly what the power should be that really persisted throughout the convention. Can you elaborate a little bit on how the framers imagined that this position would work in practice? Did they think they were giving a person a, a lot of relatively unchecked power? Did they imagine it as more of a figurehead job with all the power being held in the states? Kind of how did they actually see this executive working? They had in mind George Washington. That was the overwhelming reality was that the father of the country whose authority was so towering was presiding over the Constitutional Convention and everyone knew and expected that he would be the first president. 
And they trusted him both to be strong enough to be commander in chief, but also constrained enough not to be king. If they didn't want a king, but they wanted something stronger than the articles, and they created a pretty limited list of constitutional powers. That's why it's so significant that Washington's own presidency created precedents that we are relying on today, precedents that were not specified in the Constitution, but now everyone takes for granted as forms of presidential power, including diplomatic recognition. It was Washington who just decided that the president could receive and recognize foreign governments, and that stands until today. Treaty negotiations. His negotiation of the Jay Treaty set an important precedent that wasn't in the Constitution. Uh, he used the term cabinet, a term which isn't set out in the Constitution, and sought the advice of his cabinet, including famously Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson. He didn't always ask the Senate's advice. The Constitution gives the Senate advice and consent power to appoint judges and other high officials. And you might have read that to think that the Senate would have a role in firing those officials. But Washington rejected that and his insistence that the president alone could fire the officials he appointed set the stage for the most important battles over executive power in American history. And that removal power was perhaps Washington's greatest extra constitutional legacy. Did they create a position around this man and expect that people who would hold that position would continue to kind of reflect the values of George Washington? To a large degree, they they did reflect the position around the man, but they thought ahead to what would happen after Washington. So Washington had no children, but the framers are concerned that a future president, unlike Washington, might have children and might create a dynasty that would resurrect a monarchy. And that's why the Constitution requires that you have to be 35 years old to serve as president because the framers didn't want the young scions of a future president to serve as many dynasts or oligarchs. And they didn't entirely create the office around him because they have a deep mistrust of power. And the central goal of the convention is to disperse power so that the ultimate sovereign power is held by we the people and no branch of government, not the president, the Congress or the judiciary can speak alone in our name. And that's why the powers of the presidency are so constrained. When you go to the Constitution, uh, Article 1 uh, for Congress has all sorts of powers enumerated, but the powers of the presidency are really limited and it's a far shorter list than the list of congressional powers and, and that's because they were determined not to have a king. But the framers also didn't enumerate a lot of limitations on the president's power either, right? The short answer is no. Unlike the Bill of Rights, which explicitly says things that Congress can't do, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Article 2 doesn't say the president shall not do this or that. But there is an important debate about whether the president can exercise powers that are not explicitly enumerated in Article 2. And the wonky phrase for this debate is the debate between the vesting clause minimalists and the unitary executive people. And the vesting clause minimalists basically say the president can only do what Article 2 says, which isn't all that much. And the unitary executive people say that the power, uh, the executive power, which is vested in the president, has to be unitary and he can exercise all of it, including all powers that are necessary to make it effective. And uh, the rubber has hit the road over the question of impeachment. And, and if we ask, you know, is there anything the president can't do? No, but the Constitution does make clear that 
if Congress deems him guilty of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, then he can be impeached. And that is the way of enforcing whatever limitations on presidential power Congress believes that the president has transgressed. But there's just been extraordinarily important debates over executive power that have tended to play out in questions like, can the president close the steel mills under his commander-in-chief power, as Harry Truman tended to do, perhaps the most important executive power precedent of the post-war period and so forth. All of those take place under the president's implied powers, under his vesting clause powers or his take care clause powers, not powers that are explicitly spelled out or forbidden in the Constitution. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Ongoing debates over executive power have evolved the American presidency over time, and the changes have been significant. The framers would not recognize the modern presidency. One of those major transformation moments was the election of 1912. Because that was the election where you had two populist presidents, populist progressive presidential candidates, uh, Theodore Roosevelt running as a progressive and Woodrow Wilson running as a Democrat, who declared for the first time that the president is a direct steward of the people and should directly channel the people's will. Wilson transformed the presidency by both insisting on its popular foundation and also beginning to create the modern administrative state. Agencies like the Federal Trade Commission and the central bank, the, the Federal Reserve, and began to concentrate power in executive agencies, as well as insisting that the president could act as a representative of the entire people and of his party in a unitary fashion. The transformation that started with Wilson would continue with our 32nd president. All of that really got ramped up by Franklin Roosevelt during the New Deal, who, with the help of the radio and the increased powers granted by Congress during the New Deal and then expanded further by World War II, created the post-New Deal regulatory state and changed the balance of executive and congressional power in ways that have not changed back since. And one of the key ways the office slowly transformed was through the increase of executive orders. It was Theodore Roosevelt who first began to govern by executive order. Washington had issued very few executive orders. The, the numbers of executive orders for each president in the 19th century had been under 10, essentially, until it jumped under Lincoln in the Civil War. But Roosevelt, uh, Theodore, began to issue more than 100. And then the number jumped up even more dramatically under Franklin Roosevelt to many times that number and then settled into its modern number, which is far greater than the framers anticipated. So the big debates we're having now, and this is not a partisan issue, from President George W. Bush to President Obama to President Trump, opponents of those presidents have objected that they're trying to circumvent congressional powers by governing by executive fiat rather than doing what the Constitution requires. And all of this dates back to the 
election of 1912, when really, for the first time, presidents began to see themselves as directly representing the people and acting unilaterally, rather than acting as chief magistrates presiding over a congressionally-led system. And as presidents have changed and shifted how they use their power, the Supreme Court has weighed in to establish the limits. Let's do a quick tour of significant cases. We can start with the Myers case in the 1920s involving whether the president has the power to fire an executive branch official on his own. And their Chief Justice Taft himself, a former president, established a really broad vision of the president's power to fire executive branch officials and overruled the Tenure in Office Act, which had been invoked to impeach Andrew Johnson right after the Civil War. The notorious Korematsu case where President Franklin Roosevelt, uh, by executive order, although one that was blessed by Congress, interned Japanese-American citizens. It's a case so disgraceful that the U.S. Supreme Court recently declared that it had been overruled by the judgment of history and formally overruled it. President Truman, during the Korean War, seizes the steel mills because he says that you need the steel to fight the war. And the Supreme Court says... He can't do that under his commander-in-chief power because the president's power is at its highest ebb when it's explicitly authorized or blessed by Congress. The Watergate era was hugely important in establishing limits on presidential power. And uh, President Nixon's claim that he did not have to turn over the tapes in response to a subpoena by the special prosecutor was uh, unanimously rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court, which said he did. And then again, as our country was engaged in a war on terror following the September 11th attacks, we saw more Supreme Court cases hinging on presidential authority. The Supreme Court blessed some broad expressions of presidential authority, most notoriously or famously, the president's power to detain non-citizens abroad outside of American jurisdiction in the Boumediene case. But there were cases like the Hamdan and Hamdi cases where the court said, no, the president can't indefinitely detain suspected enemy combatants without any process or court set up by Congress. Congress responded by creating some of the courts the Supreme Court asked for. So you, you can say it's been an ebb and flow, and the Supreme Court has not been a rubber stamp to all claimed exercises of presidential authority. But overall... All, all this has led to a vastly expanded constitutional presidency. All of this brings us to the presidency today. Modern presidents have continued pushing the norms of what the presidency can do. As Congress became so polarized that presidents felt that they couldn't get action out of the legislature unless they happened to control both houses, then they began to act unilaterally to circumvent the paralysis. And President Obama famously campaigned against uh, President George W. Bush's use of executive orders and said, I'm not going to do that. And then he did. Um, and his justification was, I had to because Congress wouldn't act. And President Trump has done precisely the same thing even though he too had criticized President Obama for doing exactly what he did. So we've had two recent presidents who've criticized their predecessors for using executive orders and then have done it anyway. 
So Trump, the show is dedicated to sort of the moments that seem like presidential powers limitations are being pushed. Are, are there specific moments where you as an expert in the Constitution have questioned whether his use of executive power was seemingly pushing against a reasonable interpretation of the executive role? Well, we've had some important executive power legal disputes under President Trump. Uh, the first was the travel ban. And the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, upheld the latest version of President Trump's travel ban, suggesting that whether you agree with the decision or not, it wasn't completely beyond the pale of plausible constitutional arguments. On the other hand, the president's decision to build the wall, despite Congress's refusal to fund it, is working its way up through the courts. I suppose the most aggressive exertions of presidential power are the president's statements and tweets, we will fight all the subpoenas. The idea that he will threaten not to respond to any subpoenas for material on his own or prevent his aide from responding to subpoenas by Congress or courts is a sweeping claim. And at least so far, no courts have blessed such sweeping claims. The Nixon court explicitly rejected that. And the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't yet heard such a case. If so, the different subpoena cases will turn on both whether the subpoenas are issued by courts or Congress and also on the facts. Broadly, I think we can say that some of the, the president's statements have been more sweeping than his actions. And he hasn't yet done what all scholars agree would be a constitutional crisis, which is to refuse to obey a judicial order. If the president said, I have a subpoena for material and I'm just going to ignore it, that liberal and conservative scholars agree would be a constitutional crisis. No president in history has openly defied an order of the Supreme Court, although Andrew Jackson supposedly, although probably apocryphally, said John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. So that would be a, a category one type constitutional crisis to use the Princeton scholar Keith Whittington's categories. Category two, and there are only two categories, is a breakdown of the functions of government. If Congress refused to fund the executive branch because it was so uh, angry at the president's unilateral declarations or refused to fund the judiciary so that the judiciary couldn't function or the president refused to exercise his constitutional duties to uh, report on the State of the Union and so forth, that, that could be a, a constitutional crisis. We haven't seen that yet, but you could imagine polarization increasing to a point where the branches couldn't actually function. Yeah, which is a, a great segue to one of my final questions here for you. Do we have a clear understanding of why the framers didn't put more fail-safes in to prevent things like overreach of presidential power or executive action? Why was this not something they could foresee? It's a great question because the framers are centrally concerned with abusive power. That, that, that's what the entire Constitution is set up to avoid a constitution energetic enough to achieve common purposes but constrained enough to avoid tyranny. I think they believed that they were doing a good job in avoiding the possibility of tyranny by dividing power both vertically and horizontally, uh, vertically between the states and the federal government and horizontally between or among the president, Congress and the legislature. And you could say they did a pretty good job because it's very hard to get stuff done under our constitution. I think what the framers did not anticipate, and they couldn't have obviously because there was no Twitter, was the modern populist 
presidency, which some would say fulfills their worst fears about demagogues and the mob. They were so concerned about the rule of passion rather than reason. They said in any large assembly of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. So they, they couldn't have anticipated, first of all, the, the claims by presidents like Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt that the president should directly channel the people's will or the rise of new communications technology, in particular the radio uh, under FDR and then most recently social media, which allows the presidents to communicate directly with the people. The idea of a tweeting president would have been a Madisonian nightmare. And that's not a, a, a statement about our current president because President Obama was the first tweeting president. But Madison in Federalist 10 says there should be no direct communication between representatives and the people because that can inflame popular passions. Instead, we need sober-minded representatives and a constrained chief magistrate to allow reason to prevail. So I think you can say that they did a good job designing a system that divided and separated power and created speed bumps and roadblocks to prevent hasty decisions. But really fast mass technology is something they didn't count on. And arguably, that's posing a fundamental challenge to their vision of the constrained presidency. All right. Well, Jeff, the last thing I just want to get your thoughts on. We are about two and a half years into this show. Every week we ask a different can he do that question. And largely the answer, a lot of our listeners basically question, why is the answer always yes? Presidential power seems to not have that many limitations in the modern era. What is your answer to kind of why why does it always seem like yes or, or the answer is yes until the courts stop him? The reason presidents can push the boundaries until the courts stop them is because they generally act with popular support or at least the support of mobilized minorities. Uh, when presidents overreach in ways that the public doesn't like, then Congress does react. Remember the court packing battle of the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court in his own party, the Democrats in Congress, uh, having just won an overwhelming majority in the 36 election, said he can't do that because people didn't like the idea of politicizing the courts in that way. So it, 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 at the most important moments in American constitutional history, the moments we think of as constitutional crises, like the Civil War and the New Deal, there have been times when presidents have tried to overreach and uh, Congress has said he can't do that. The Reconstruction Congress impeached Andrew Johnson because they believed he was thwarting Reconstruction and almost succeeded in removing him from office. The, the, the Democratic Congress checked FDR. If a president today, President Trump or any other president, were to act in a way that fundamentally threatened uh, the understandings of the majority of the country, Congress would say he can't do that. Even this Congress has said he can't reallocate money to build the wall. And this Congress was on the verge of preventing the president from raising tariffs on Mexico, not by veto-proof majorities, but they were trying to exercise their power. The truth is you need an overwhelming uh, opposition to the president and Congress, uh, namely a veto-proof majority in order for c Congress to stop the president. But it's heartening to see that at these great thresholds in American history, Congress has exercised its own constitutional responsibilities to check the president. But uh, it's also heartening that we have an independent judiciary that during moments of existential threat to the country through presidential overreach have also said uh, he can't do that. 
And that's the case that we usually have to wait for the courts because often it's contested whether or not the president can act and the political support may be mixed or strong. But it's a success of the American constitutional system that when push comes to shove, if the president tries to transgress clearly defined constitutional limitations, the courts will indeed stop him. All right. Well, it is good to know that the Constitution still seems to be working. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For more information about the United States Constitution, including a look at early drafts and an interactive experience, visit constitutioncenter.org. And if you prefer an audio experience, check out The Washington Post's Constitutional Podcast, hosted by our very own Lillian Cunningham, that explores the history of the U.S. Constitution, how it was framed, and how it's been reshaped today. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the unstoppable Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudall-Brooks, logo art from Loren Bolio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. Happy Fourth of July! If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 